Very good. Well, as I mentioned just a moment ago, I get the good opportunity to um, um, be the substitute teacher this morning um, because our main teacher is out uh, on vacation, and I'm very lucky to have the opportunity uh, to do so. Uh, before I get started, though, I do want to say uh, from the outset that um, it's going to take us a little, a little bit of time to sort of jog through uh, the stories that we're going to be looking at today. So just stay patient. I really believe that God has a word for some people in this room, perhaps, if not all of us uh, here today. One of my favorite teachers, Fred Craddock, said, it's a long, it's a long road to Nazareth. You can't take the shortcut. You've got to take the long route every time. And it might take us a little while to get there. But trust me, I think that God has something for us today. I'd like to begin with a statement by a well-known poet by the name of Robert Burns, who was famous for having said, Oh, the gift that God would give us to see what others see. This came home to me in a very real way when I went to pick up my son at his friend's house this past week. Uh, my friend has a son, his name is Lincoln Thonin. Uh, Lincoln is the son to Jason and Stephanie Thonin, who I believe is related to uh, Rachel and others here and their friends. Of course, they're Jason and, and Stephanie, our friends of Buffy and I. They have a great family. And so when I went to pick up Caleb, um, I went to the front door and I decided to ring the doorbell. And when I rang the doorbell, the mechanism that was the doorbell didn't look so much like a doorbell. It looked more like an electronic box from outer space. But I knew that that was the thing that I was supposed to touch because there was a button and there looked like a, little bit of a, like a little bit of a video coming through that thing. But nonetheless, I touched the button and I just kind of stood there for like 30 seconds and lo and behold, I hear this voice coming from the extraterrestrial atmosphere. And it says to me, Otto, I will bring Caleb home in about 10 minutes. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. This made me almost use the restroom right on their front porch. <laughs> because I had no idea whose this voice was and where it was coming from. And I was sure that whoever was talking to me was able to see me, but I wasn't able to see them. And she says, Otto, are you there? Which scared me even worse. <laughs> and so I knew nothing else to do other than to say, yes, yes, I'm here. And then the voice says it again, Otto, are you there? At this point, I realize it's Stephanie Thonin. But I'm looking up into the sky I'm looking behind me, and I don't see Stephanie anywhere. And eventually she said, Otto, I'll see you in 10 minutes. I'm bringing Caleb home. I said, okay, thank you. Now, I imagine they probably have video of this whole thing. And I'm sure if you and I had the opportunity to watch it, we would laugh hysterically at it. Because when this conversation was over, like I said, I was looking all around me. I was looking into the sky. I didn't know what was going on. I was just very confused. I actually looked on the neighbor's uh, rooftop because I know that Jason used to be a Marine, and I didn't know if he was acting like a sniper up there on their roof, just waiting to shoot me with his paintball gun. I didn't know what was going on. But it was truly an enlightening moment for me because I didn't know this 
kind of thing actually existed. I didn't know it was a real thing that somebody could see me, but I couldn't uh, see them. So the statement that I mentioned by Robert Burns, oh, the gift that God would give us to see what others could see, really, really came home to me in that moment. And so today, we're going to be looking at some things that will help us see into a realm that is beyond where we typically see things. And the reason we will be seeing these things is because in chapter 26 of the story, it speaks specifically to this reality. I'm saying this to you because we will be talking about the presence of evil when it shows up during the last moments of life for Jesus. Now, be forewarned, when we talk about this stuff, we're actually going to be talking about the devil himself. And we're going to be talking about the forces of good that try to oppose the devil. But I think it's important to talk about these things for two reasons. First of all, the writer of the Gospel of Luke that we will be focusing on actually speaks to its reality. And truth be told, this reality probably has more influence on you and I than what you and I realize. One of my friends was famous for having said, we are not human beings having spiritual experiences, but rather we are spiritual beings having human experiences. And in this moment in Jesus' life, this reality becomes very, very real. And he speaks to it in Luke chapter 22, verse 53, that should be found on the screen up here. He said to the religious leaders, this is your hour, and it's the power of darkness. Jesus is speaking to something that he sees happening in the minds and hearts of the religious leaders. He sees darkness and its power influencing those who seek to oppose him. And this whole story unfolds in Luke chapter 22 in the first few verses. Look at what it says. It says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death. Now, as you know, the chief priests and the scribes and the religious leaders, they were strategizing, as you can see, they were strategizing for some way to get rid of Jesus. And this is what I want you to see today, because this dark moment in Jesus' life was more than a bunch of prideful and arrogant religious leaders. It was something beyond what we normally pay attention to. And the gospel writer speaks directly to its reality. And this reality is Satan's influence. Satan's influence. Look at Luke chapter 2, verses, uh, Luke chapter 22, verses 3 through 6. It says this, Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. So as you can see, Judas Iscariot is one of the twelve disciples. And he was within the inner circle of leadership alongside of Jesus. And what's important to see here is that Judas himself becomes influenced by the devil himself. 
This version of the Bible says that Satan entered into Judas. Now, we don't really have time to get into how Satan actually entered into Judas, but suffice it to say that Judas left enough room in his heart to be influenced by God's enemy. And we do know that from other stories in the Bible that Judas had a serious struggle with handling money. And so the devil used money to entice Judas and to enter into his heart to ultimately destroy him. Because Satan knew the desires that existed within Judas's heart and mind. James 1.14 speaks to this as it says, Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. When I was preparing for this this week, I heard a story about a prominent preacher, his name was Roland Hill, and he talked about this idea in one of his sermons. And he said a long time ago, he was going down the street and he saw a group of pigs that were following a man. And he said he was really curious about this, and so he determined to kind of follow this entire situation. And he said to his great surprise, he saw these pigs follow this man straight to the slaughterhouse. He said, I was anxious to know how this was happening and how this was brought, ab brought about. And he said to this man, uh, my friend, how did you manage to induce these pigs to follow you here? And the man said, oh, did you not see? I had a basket of beans under my arm and I dropped a few as I came along and so they followed me all the way to the slaughterhouse. See, money was the desire that Satan used to take Judas to the slaughterhouse. And he used it not only to betray Jesus, but also to ultimately get Judas to betray even himself. Because don't you remember, after Judas did this, the Bible tells us that Judas committed suicide. And we know that Jesus said that the goal of Satan is to steal, kill, and destroy. And Satan's influence on the life of Judas was profound in this moment. And unfortunately, Satan didn't stop with Judas. He tried to expand his influence into the lives of the other disciples. Later on in this same chapter of Luke, we read about what Jesus said to Peter. Look at verse 31. It says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you even know me. What's interesting is that when, J when Jesus says, Satan demanded to have you, this you word in the scriptures is actually referring to a plural form. So, so when Satan is demanding to have you, it's not just Peter. He wanted to have the rest of the disciples. Because when we open a door, the enemy of God wants to take the whole house. But what we do know is that Satan did, in fact, establish an influence on the life of Peter. In fact, not long after this, the chief priest officers of the temple, they seized Jesus, as you remember, and they dragged him into the temple courts. 
And when this happens, the Bible says something interesting about Peter because he's still watching this event. But the Bible says that Peter was following at a distance. And as he followed at a distance, the evil one used this situation to get Peter to deny the very thing he had just declared. Do you remember the story at this moment? People start coming up to Peter and saying, don't you know this man, Jesus? And Peter's like, no, I don't know who he is. Another person comes up a while later and says, didn't you spend time with this guy? Aren't you associated with him? I don't know who he is. Another person comes up, the Bible says about an hour later, and they say, certainly you were with Jesus. And Peter said, no, no, that wasn't me. So under this pressure in front of everyone, Peter denies vehemently ever knowing Jesus at all. And all of this happens moments after Peter said he would never deny his faith before God and men. How could this happen? How could this happen? How does someone go from communicating such a strong commitment to their faith and moments later deny ever having faith? Well, I think in this moment, the evil one knew how to get Peter, Peter to falter under pressure. And the net result of Satan's influence in Peter's life is found in Luke chapter 22, verse 62, where it says, Peter went out and wept bitterly. A sad story. Charles Stanley, a well-known preacher in Atlanta, Georgia, he says, when Satan does this to believers in Jesus... His goal is to damage our faith so much that we're useless to God. I'm sure this is probably how Peter felt, like a useless follower of God. I don't know about you, but I know what that's like. I know what it's like to blow it and to mess up and make a mistake and to not be the person that God wants me to be. And I imagine some of you probably also know what it's like when you mess up, when you fail to be the kind of parent that you think God wants you to be, or you fail to be the kind of coworker that is a godly example, or maybe you give in to temptation and you feel like a failure. It's easy to feel like there is no way you could be used of God when you make a mistake before God and others. And I'm sure this is how Peter felt, because he failed while under the influence of God's enemy. But what is important to see is that Satan had a, such a profound influence upon this moment and that it led to the betrayal and denial of Jesus and the hour of darkness doesn't end here because Satan's influence continues as Jesus is tried before the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders. When he was brought before the Roman authorities, you might remember they bring him before Pilate, and Pilate says, there is no cause to convict this man. And then Pilate, when having a conversation with him, uh, sends him over to the jurisdiction of Herod because he finds out he's from Galilee. And Herod says, well, I can't find out anything wrong, uh, wrong with him. So he sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate continues to ask him questions. He continues to try him, and the Jews are scorning Jesus, and they're asking Pilate, to arrest him and convict him. And the Bible says something interesting about Pilate. It says in this moment, Pilate delivered Jesus over to their will. 
And now remember, this began with them, the Jews, seeking a way to put Jesus to death. And when Satan entered the picture, the Jews got what they wanted. So the important thing to see is that the influence of Satan upon this moment in history is so very real. But the good news about this bad situation is that this story you and I read was God's intent all along. Listen to what Jesus said in the Gospels. He says in Matthew 20, verse 18, before any of this happened, he says, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law and they will condemn him to death. So this is before any of this stuff happens. This was a part of God's mission through his son, Jesus. In fact, in the book of Mark, chapter 8, Jesus begins teaching his disciples about this very same thing. And Peter tries to correct Jesus, and he tells Jesus, this could never happen. And so Jesus says, Peter, you're wrong. And he actually says something to Peter in this moment that is rather, rather startling. He says, get behind me, Satan. And the reason Jesus rebukes Peter is because this whole thing that was going on that we just talked about was God's intention all along. This is the story that God had been weaving together throughout the entire Old Testament for hundreds of years. In fact, some scholars say that there are over 200 prophecies about Jesus that were fulfilled by him. In fact, some of them refer to this moment uh, uh, when he was scorned by the Jews um, in the Old Testament, there are specific references to it. Look at a few of them that I prov provided for you. In Isaiah 50, 50, 53, 3, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. In Psalm 118, 22, it says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And when we started this story series, we made a reference to the first prophetic word in the Bible about the battle that would go on between Satan and Jesus. Look at what it says in Genesis 3.15. It says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In this reference, God reveals what Satan would try to do to influence God's plan through Jesus. When it says that Satan will strike his heel, it is referring to the repeated attempts the devil would make to throw Jesus off of his game plan. But God predicts that the knockout blow would ultimately come from him because a strike to the heel might be a temporary setback, but a blow to the head is, is deadly. It's final. And God planned to finish the devil through Jesus. This was God's intent from the beginning, and he stayed true to it all the way through to the end. And so when Jesus was on the cross, he uttered these words in John chapter 20. He said this, Later knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, plant and lifted it to Jesus's lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. 
So these words that Jesus uttered were his last, but they are full of meaning. The main point he is making is that he fulfilled the intent of what God had for him. Although his mission was full of denial, rejection, and condemnation, he finished the task intended for him. And this is exactly what is meant by these words. So this part of the biblical story has shown us two main ideas that are consistent themes throughout the entire biblical storyline. These two main ideas are these, Satan's influence and God's intent. From the very beginning of time, Satan has been trying to exert his influence and has often gained a lot of ground. He was able to get Adam and Eve to turn away against God, and they did. And in the very same moment, God stepped in to reveal his intention to redeem their lives from fear and shame. This has been the basic theme throughout the entirety of the Bible. It might not always be explicit, but the implicit idea is there. Now, what's interesting is that human beings, when we read the Bible, are often the characters in the story, but the stuff to focus on and to see are these two main ideas that I've mentioned. And the stuff to see that's going on behind the scenes is characterized very well by the Apostle Paul when he says in Ephesians, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So this really is real stuff. This is really the stuff that was going on during these moments in the life of Jesus. And since this is really the real stuff, I think it might be useful for us to discuss explicitly how this plays out in our real lives. So first, let's talk about God's enemy a little bit more. What I want you to know uh, is that Satan's goal is to ruin God's plan for you. Uh, by all accounts, he accomplished this goal with Judas, he tried to do this with Peter, and also he was able to invade these moments of the life of Jesus because he, want, he wanted to ruin God's plan for Jesus. Because while in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before Jesus was arrested, Jesus said to God, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. He wanted to get into the mind of Jesus to trip him up, and he tried to ruin God's plan even with God himself. He put the pressure on and played his hand to destroy the work of God. Now, please know, I don't say this to invoke fear, but simply for you to see the real stuff for what it is. Because the devil is real. He's very real. Recently, I read a story about two six-year-olds who struggled with the problem of the existence of the devil. And one boy said, there isn't any devil. He doesn't exist. And then another, rather upset, said, what do you mean? There isn't any devil? It talks about him all the way through the Bible. And the first kid replied, oh, that's not true. Don't you know? It's just like Santa Claus. The, devil's, the devil always turns out to be your dad. <laughs> well, the devil isn't like Santa Claus, and he is not a fictional character. In fact, one man said, one great success of the devil is that he has convinced the world that he doesn't exist. 
And what we know is that he certainly exists and he has a goal. In fact, after Peter denied Jesus, he wrote about the goal of God's enemy. Nearly 30 years later in his book, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he said, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And if you're a nature enthusiast, um, and if you've ever watched a lion sneaking up on its prey, you understand the danger that Peter is referring to. Because the lion is stealth, and when he finds something to devour, he wastes no time. He steadily but quietly sneaks closer and closer, and if the prey is not alert and watching out for him, he goes in for the kill. And Peter knew this firsthand. And he would have never imagined himself giving into the devil's plan and caving under pressure. But this is exactly how it worked in his life, and this is exactly how it works in ours. The devil is subtle, and he seeks an opportune moment to ruin what God is trying to do in you and me. Personally, I believe that the enemy of God, as a defeated enemy, would like nothing more than for God's people to feel as though they are defeated, especially after they mess up. Of course, we know after Judas betrayed Jesus as someone who failed and as someone who was defeated by the devil, because of this, he took his own life. And we also know that after Peter denied Jesus, he wept and he was depressed. And after Adam and Eve had fallen into temptation, we know that they hid from God and they were ashamed. This became especially uh, relevant for me when um, I used to listen to that old band, Newsboys. You ever heard of Newsboys? Yes, I probably a half dozen of you have. And uh, one of my favorite songs by one of their old records was Dear Shame. And I think the lyrics of this song perfectly describe the effects of defeat and shame that probably defined the life of Peter and Judas. Look at the words, I have them for you on the screen. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing them. The words say this, I catch you digging in my trash for stuff I've long thrown away. You bring it back on a tray. I flee the light just to live in your shadow. I'm needing mercy and you offer me blame. Dear shame, you're oh so eager to toy with me. You're always stealing the joy in me. You love to whisper my name. Dear shame. Dear shame, you've got me living like a bug, crawling in fear. It's been a very long year. I dream of growing some wings. I think I'm flying away. Then you point and you spray. All my hidden secrets crave the light of forgiveness. You pull the shades. You accuse and you blame. Dear shame. Aren't those great words? The enemy of God wants to use shame to ruin you. This is exactly what Satan's plan is, to get you to feel ashamed, to get you to feel defeated, only to then hide from God in fear. This is the plan of God's enemy. This is his goal. But wait. Because while it's Satan's goal to ruin God's plan for you, 
it is also God's goal to redeem his plan in you. After Jesus was crucified and died, as you know, he was laid in a tomb, and he rose from the dead. But in Mark chapter 16, we read about an incident when some women went to anoint Jesus, uh, went to his tomb to anoint Jesus with some spices. And upon arriving, the stone had been rolled away, as you know, and Jesus speaks to them. Listen to what he says. He says, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Did you catch that? Jesus tells them to go tell the disciples, and he mentions one person's name in particular. Whose name did he mention? Peter. You don't have to answer this. This is a rhetorical question, but why do you think he only mentioned Peter's name? He gave a generic reference to the disciples, but he specifically mentions Peter's name. Why is this? I think it's because Jesus knows what happened to Peter. He knows that Peter blew it. He knows that Peter failed. He knows that Satan tried to work his plan in Peter's life. And I would imagine that Peter was suffering under the heavy burden of shame. But Jesus mentioned Peter's name specifically because he wanted to redeem his plan for Peter's life. Jesus didn't forget what he told Peter earlier on in his life. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus said, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus had a plan for Peter. He had given Peter authority against the gates of Satan himself. And this plan was established before Peter was influenced by Satan. This plan was established before Peter messed up big time. And this is why Jesus asked for Peter, because Jesus wanted to redeem his plan in Peter's life. And that is exactly what happened. Well, after you read later on in John chapter 21, you will find the story about how Jesus meets up with Peter. And he asked Peter, do you love me? And he says, of course I love you, Lord. He says, feed my sheep. And he asked him three times. And Jesus redeems the plan that he had for Peter. And this, to me, my friends, is an amazing glimpse into God's heart to redeem Peter's life from defeat. And this, my friends, I think is his goal for you and I today. Now, please listen to me. The message of this entire book, known as the Bible, is really one simple idea. It is God always working to redeem his plan for you. And if you are here today, you were meant to be here today because you needed to hear this. And God's enemy wants you to think that your story is defined by defeat. But when God shows up on the scene, he has a different plan. You might only see defeat, but God sees beyond the defeat. 
And if you could have eyes to see what God is doing in your life right now, I think you would be absolutely astonished. Think about it. This hour of darkness in the life of Jesus was surrounded by defeat. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. The Jews rejected him. But in spite of all of this, Jesus showed us that if we will just lift our eyes to see God's intent beyond the feeling of defeat, we will see what God has for us. Oh, the gift that God would give us to be able to see what he sees. I want to close with one final story. You might remember this story from 2 Kings chapter 6. Uh, we read about a time when a people known as the Arameans uh, were at war with the Israelites, God's people. And the king of this people, the king of Aram, decided to set his camp at a certain place where he could attack and ambush the Israelites. But the prophet Elisha tells the king of Israel not to pass by that place where they were planning to ambush and attack uh, God's people. So they successfully avoid the attack of the Arameans. Well, this makes the king of Aram very, very angry. And he starts accusing his own people of turning against him. And they tell him, it's not your own people. It's actually one of their prophets. It's the prophet Elisha. So then immediately the king of Aram, he's really, really, really going to find this guy, Elisha. He sends an enormous army to capture Elisha. And this army surrounds the city where Elisha is staying. And Elisha is there with his servant. And when the servant wakes up in the morning, he looks outside and he is frozen in fear because he is met with this vast army. And he tells Elijah, we are going to be toast. It's like two against the world. What are we going to do? And at this moment, look at what Elisha prayed for his servant. It says in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17, it says, And Elisha prayed, Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, I searched for an image to illustrate what Elisha saw, and I found something. So take a look, and this is, this is what I found. Now, you can see in the middle of the frame an image of King Aram's army that opposed Elisha and his servant. But just on the horizon, do you see the army that God sent to rescue them? And this is what Elisha saw. And this is what he wanted his servant to see. Because Elisha could see that although his servant could only see defeat all around them, Elisha was able to see into a realm that God gave him. Well, needless to say, King Aram's army was no match for this army that God sent. And suffice it to say, they cried uncle because this heavenly band of warriors flexed their muscles and showed that when God shows up, the story immediately changes. And it did in this moment. God smites them blind, and they seriously do cry for mercy. You should read the story. It's a fantastic story. The reason I show you this is because it illustrates the fact that when God shows his intent amidst the enemy's attack, things change. And listen to me. You may have failed big time. 
I know I have. I have tasted defeat. But let us learn from today that if we will open our eyes to see the real story in the pages of Scripture, we will see that God is surrounding us to deliver us from defeat. He did it for Peter. He did it for Jesus. He wants to do it for you. The question is, will you let him? Let's pray.